So a few weeks ago, we hosted a live webinar, which was supported by Clinivid, all about virtual MDTs, multidisciplinary team meetings, which are a bringing together of clinical staff in a hospital setting to work out the treatment plan for patients. And you see these MDTs, particularly in the pre-COVID world, where a bunch of clinicians cram into a room and basically brainstorm or workshop how to best treat a patient. And they pull up results and they share expertise. And it's where all the magic happens. Well, doing all this in a socially distant manner meant doing more virtual styles of MDTs. And much like a lot of other parts of healthcare that went virtual out of necessity initially during the pandemic, many people have suggested that the concept of a virtual MDT should continue post-pandemic. So we pulled together a panel of experts to discuss this very topic, which you'll hear in a second. And I think this one will interest you as well. If you've ever thought about the medico-legal risks and issues of taking clinical images... So pictures of patients on a mobile phone and sending these images for a second opinion onto someone. All done with the best intentions, but can you use any messaging tool? What happens when you store your patient photos in the same camera roll as your Santa photos with the kids and all that kind of stuff? So listen out, we talk about a bit of that as well. And by the way, if you're a fan of this style of episode where attendees comment live in the chat and that shapes how the conversation goes, you're going to love the Talking Health Tech Autumn Summit, which is coming up on the 12th of May. It's a full day virtual event and we'll be covering topics like this and a bunch of other ones as well. So get your tickets if you've not already. They're great value. They're available on our website, talkinghealthtech.com summit, and you can attend live and also get access to all the recordings afterwards as well. We might turn a couple of those sessions into podcast episodes, but definitely not all of them. So come along live on the 12th of May. Remember, you can become a THT Plus member as well, which is our community for people who are passionate about making a meaningful impact in healthcare using technology. And as a THT Plus member, you can attend all of our virtual summits for free. We do one every quarter, and you also get access to all of our previous recordings as well. So it's really good value. So in the meantime, after the music, you'll hear a panel discussion about virtual MDTs, Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. Healthcare can be disjointed at the best of times. So for complex care or when you need to bring together different clinicians and stakeholders, we've got the MDT multidisciplinary team meetings, having everyone physically in the same room to work through a patient's case is definitely effective. It's collaborative, but can the same be achieved in a virtual setting as well? Actually, outside of all the logistical implications and other things that arise, what about the security issues or the medico-legal issues? When more technology is involved in healthcare, documentation and delivery. Well, today we're hosting a live panel conversation at this webinar about the topic of virtual MDTs, improving outcomes and minimizing legal risk. On the panel, I'm joined by Dr. Tim Smythe, former Deputy Secretary of New South Wales Ministry of Health and Senior Executive in Hospital and Community Health Services. He's got qualifications in medicine, law, management, and a bunch of experience in clinical governance and medico-legal and regulatory frameworks and clinical care and services. We've also got Dr. Talat Apple, who is an obstetrician and gynecologist who's also trained in ultrasound. She's the director of Women's Health Road and set up an innovative, digitally integrated, multidisciplinary obstetric and gynecology service with in-house ultrasound facilities. Last but not least is Sue Sinclair, Service Line Director for Cancer Care at Ramsey Healthcare. Sue's worked at a strategic level in the healthcare sector for over 15 years. She's passionate about developing better ways to improve health and well-being for patients around. So thank you, everyone, the panelists who have attended today. And I can see here in the chat, we have people continue to roll in as well. G'day, Hannah, James, many more. Drop in the chat where you're from, Shweta. Hello, Sarah. So put us a quick message in the chat 
about where you're from. Maybe also um, get the ball rolling too, because it's going to be a collaborative conversation that we have in this session today. This topic around virtual MDTs, do any uh, thoughts come to mind from the outset? Or if you've got burning questions without even starting, feel free to use the Q&A section down the bottom too, and we can address those to the attendees. Cool. So um, I'm going to then open up to the panelists first to give a bit more context and perspectives about themselves and what they might be contributing to this conversation about virtual MDTs. Maybe we start with Tim and then we'll go with Talat and then and then Sue. Thanks, Peter. Just a, a few quick, quick comments is that uh, I'm a convert and a believer in the use of uh, virtual technology in health. It's great that COVID has accelerated its adoption and we need to make sure that we continue to use it intelligently and also in a correct medico-legal matter. The main issues medico-legally is just practising common sense. Pretend you're the patient. Would you want your information treated in the way that you're doing it? And privacy law applies. It's technology neutral and uh, your medical defence or professional indemnity insurers have plenty of resources to advise you on that. So don't let the law stop you doing it. The law just requires you to do it sensibly. Nice one. Thank you. Great to kick off. And Talat? I'm an obstetrician and gynecologist. Thank you, Peter. And basically, I have a problem with one sentence, which is, this is how we've always done it. So I think I'm constantly thinking, well, how can we provide care that is streamlined, that meets the needs of the women and their families that we care for? And perhaps how can we do it differently? And like Tim rightly said, I think the pandemic has been a catalyst for us to think, well, what is the best way to deliver the care and how can we streamline it best? And no doubt digital health is a big and a critical portion of that. I have set up a medical center that has a multidisciplinary um, component, and I would love to speak more about that after the introduction. Thank you. And Sue. Thanks, Peter. Hi, everyone. It's fantastic to be here to be able to talk about MDTs and really bringing them into the most appropriate way of using clinicians' time. So from a Ramsey perspective as service line director, we've looked specifically around how we can make MDTs more accessible so that they can actually participate from where they are as opposed to having to cross campus, go to another hospital. So I bring the private sector experience, but also an enterprise approach to MDTs. Excellent. So we've got a good cross-section of representation for this panel today. I encourage attendees to put anything in the chat or the Q&A that they want to share. If they're really passionate about jumping on stage and are appropriately attired, I guess, then feel free to, you can actually raise your hand using all the fancy Zoom features and we can bring you on as a panelist if you really want to ask a question in person, but it works really well to put it in the Q&A or the chat. And also if you have any thoughts too, it will definitely shape the way the conversation goes. So I'm keen to learn from Sue and Talat a little bit more detail. We might start with Talat, but particularly in terms of the MDTs, I mean, they're a critical element to continuity of care, doing them virtually, what's been your experience so far? So, um, Peter, I think the virtual angle is so helpful, but you really do have to have the core foundation of trust in the team, of knowing who the team is going to be. And the team can be very dynamic and very varying depending on the individual patient's needs or circumstances. And I guess our experience has been quite positive. I have been very lucky in my medical center that I think have won the staff lottery and our front staff are very digitally savvy. And that might would be my message to clinicians that not all of us, including myself, would claim to be an IT expert. But if we partner with the right staff and we have the right platforms, the software enabled in our practices, then that can be the foundation on which we can rest all these sophisticated models of healthcare, which I think the women and the community actually deserve. And more and more research is showing that very simple principles. The sum of us is greater than one of us. And the skill that I may have will not be the same skill set that someone else will have in the team. And at the end of the day, a patient-centric model, I almost think the virtual MDT is like a circle around her. And what it means is that it that that we're not only 
connecting for her episode of care, but we're also connecting within ourselves. I can't count how many patients have said to me, thank you for not communicating through me and for, you know, knowing exactly and keeping abreast of um, the information that, you know, and the results and the tests that I've had done. So, you know, it, it opens you to a more traditional method where a patient might go to one person and then you wait for that letter to come back. And then, you know, you sometimes have to follow up and chase up all these and you're still not having that dynamic information in real time, which the virtual MDT allows. It allows us to break the barriers of some of the logistics. It's not always perfect because obviously every clinician has their schedules and you still have to make it somehow. Sometimes I think I'm making a Rubik's Cube, but the more and more that we are using it, I feel that we are learning from lessons as well from, you know, how can we tweak this? How can we do this better? You know, and and it has been amazing in terms of like, for one example, I'll give you is that we are now have someone with a urogynecology interest in our team, which has meant that in general, and I don't mean to generalize, but but, you know, we are looking after, it's our privilege to care for women who might be elderly and they may have other, you know, barriers to basically difficulties that we need to somehow enable them and empower them into better positions. So, for example, we could have a patient that we want to discuss and it allows us to bring the GP specialist into that conversation. It allows us to bring, for example, her son in the country into that, that critical conversation to have around and with her so not all our MDTs are just the professionals amongst themselves they're actually a number of them are very patient-centric and they include the patient and the patient's family and so what that does is that it allows us to look at the issue through different lens and I've been blown away where you know I might think look the GP specialist has actually brought up the real right issue of who's going to care for her unwell husband at home which may not have been the the primary thing on my gynecological plan or my, you know, immediate issues. So I think the benefits of MDT are amazing, but the benefits of virtual MDT are like icing on the cake. And I feel that definitely the women come out on top. There's so much I want to dive into there and, and go into more details, but we won't go down those rabbit holes just yet because I want to hear from Sue's experience as well more recently with doing virtual MDTs. So in Ramsey, we've looked at it specifically, I guess the use case is cancer care at an enterprise level. And MDTs are absolutely critical around the diagnosis and treatment planning. But because cancer care is delivered across multiple disciplines, so surgery, medical oncology, radiation oncology, insights from pathology, radiology, care coordinators, it's enabled all of those personnel really looking after that patient to come together. And we went down the path of working through how do we enable better access, reduce burden, digital systems that were going to demonstrate best practice, but also capture the discussion, what's the consensus of a group, and then how do we record that in the medical records? So it's been a two-year evolution. And fair to say, I guess I've got an aerial view, which is a bit different from Talat's experience, but Every MDT is a bit different. And I think what's really important is the ability to be underpinned and structured by best practice. You know, this is the core information that's required. This is the framework. This is why we have MDTs. But how you work as an MDT might be slightly different. So I think, you know, we've taken a very accessible and flexible and mobile approach to ensure that clinicians can participate from wherever they are and enabled by a platform that starts to facilitate that and bringing the right people together. We've also integrated with video as well as a digital platform so that pathology and radiology can share their images on screen rather than needing to upload or they go in through their um, portals to share that information. So it's real-time decision-making rather than static information, I guess, and then capturing that dynamic nature of an MDT. I'm keen to dive into something there come to mind just as you're talking about that. You know, some of these benefits of doing things virtually, they sound great and, and it might be 
difficult to do it in an in-person environment. Whereas a lot of healthcare institutions, like we can address Vicky's question separately, specifically Vicky's put in the chat as in Q&A, which is about change management, which we'll talk about in a sec. But there's a lot of healthcare that looks at technology and virtual elements as almost like a stopgap to get us through COVID. And when things get back to normal, then we can go back to being bricks and mortar and get off the virtual thing. Whereas what you're talking about, it sounds like there's bits that might be here to stay. Is that fair to say, Talat? Yes, I think so. I think the philosophy has changed and especially uh, a number of the people we look after are very busy women. They may be busy on a professional level. They may have aging parents to be caring for, the joys of their teenage children, whatever the, the, the utter circumstances are. Women, I think, have realized or, or the people we look after have realized that, you know, there's actually quite a bit of convenience in telehealth as well um, if an examination is not required in terms of travel time, in terms of sometimes people lose the entire morning session in just trying to attend one doctor's visit. So I think those that mindset has changed not only for clinicians, but also for the community that we serve. And it is good to actually maintain that momentum so that we can have that combination. Obviously, a face-to-face has its own joy. And I, I do think that that has its own beauty or its own positive impact. But I would say telehealth and multidisciplinary virtual platforms are very, very close behind. And what my learning has been that, for example, the original equipment that we've invested in, for example, like behind me is a chair that allows me to take a digital picture. And so I look at my notes from two years ago when I didn't have that equipment, and I feel that there's no way that there's a comparison between a visual capture of what I have described, even though I think I generally describe reasonably well and quite at length, even then it does not compare, like a picture speaks a thousand words. So I think in the first place, the virtual MDT has to layer onto a clinic that you have thought through the pathways or whichever clinical context you're looking at the patient through. It has to have that initial foundation and the pathways there to be able to share that information. So we have found that the, uh, for example, corposcopy images or ultrasound images, or like Sue mentioned, you know, various tests then become so much easier to share and get the very, very important opinions upon in real time. And Tim, you joked at the start about being a convert and seeing some of the value around the virtual elements. Are you seeing this as well? Absolutely. And many of the points that uh, Talala has outlined is uh, the benefits both to clinicians, but also importantly to patients and families. And then as Sue has said, from operational organisational point of view, uh, the benefits are virtual. But it's uh, horses for courses and one's not completely replacing the other. I guess in one sense for multidisciplinary teams, particularly say in cancer care, is that while in some cases the team might have the patient actually there physically when they're running physical face-to-face meetings, generally it's clinicians and they're talking about the evidence that's before them, what are the treatment options, what's the best way to go, those sort of things there. And that's that's well suited to a virtual discussion. But at the same point of time, you need discipline behind that. It's not just uh, Wild West frontier land. You need to have policies. At a practical medical legal level, you need to be able to say, well, who was there? And MDTs work towards a consensus, but it's just as important to be able to know that someone differed from a medical legal point of view, and they didn't agree with uh, that recommendation. And so that that is actually recorded somewhere, particularly by the person who dissented, uh, so that if the issue does come up later down the track in a medical legal setting, there's evidence to say, well, I didn't support that decision. So just practical things about making sure in a virtual case, you know who's there. You also know who's in the background. So the importance about settings, and uh, if you're going to join a virtual MDT from home, who else is able to listen in and see what see what's happening? And it's also, uh, if you're using virtual technology to provide your point of view or to provide an image or a pathology or a text or some other information is make sure it's actually going to who you think it's going to. And uh, we all know the terrors of hitting reply all to an email well, that risk still applies in a virtual MDT. Make sure the information is going to who you think it is. Yeah. 
maybe it's like increased risk and reward that whole kind of thing. Mm. There's, there's other elements to that yeah so you need policies you need a platform and technology that's going to work and support it and i'd strongly support sue's comment point about using it as a portal so you're not trying to duplicate images that are already recorded elsewhere in an emr for example or pathology results so you're not ending up with multiple silos of information and you no longer have a medical record for that patient yeah, we don't need more silos in healthcare. We've got enough of them. So no, no, no. We're the big. We're bigger than the Australian wheat board. <laughs> yeah. of silos. That's and, right. And, and I think, um, Peter, just picking up on Tim's point, it's the dynamic conversation of hmm. the group, and it's the outcome of that conversation, as opposed to necessarily all of the static information that might have fed into that. It's hmm. the expertise that's brought in. And then the conversation around, well, what's, you know, in the cancer context, the stage of disease, tell me about that as a histopathologist, what's your expertise here? And as a radiologist, what are these images telling us? And then how do we interpret that as a team and what's the best pathway and guidelines for someone with this type of cancer diagnosis? So it is that dynamic nature but then capturing the discussion, as Tim said, around either consensus or diverging views, what are the recommendations for this case? And in our instance, we have then collated that as a downloadable PDF at this stage that goes into the medical record. So there is a, a record of that discussion. And then who attended as a participant, you register onto the platform and can print off all of the MDTs you attended for your own CPD and your professional status on a yearly basis to send to the colleges. So I think all of those elements need to be there for it to be effective. And as Sue said, a benefit of a virtual MDT is the ability to bring in another expert, including from overseas if, if it's appropriate, whereas it's very hard to arrange that in the traditional face-to-face -face meeting in you know, meeting room three on level four mm. of uh, the hospital. For us, even something as simple as having the partner of the patient in the car park join us during the peak of the pandemic when they felt so isolated and so you know excluded from so much of the patient's journeys, I think does add a lot of, because it's not only outcomes that people want, patients want, they want the experience as well. So we've got to be mindful that their mental health journeys are actually very much part of the care that we provide. And so I think this also is very enabling in that regard. I'm just picking up on a comment that John's put in the chat, but I think it can also tie in with one of the questions that Vicky put in the Q&A section here, which is, you know, what does this practically look like when we talk about the benefits of a dynamic conversation? We've got a bit of time to get into the detail and the specifics. Like, that sounds easy to say. What does it actually look like? Is it a written down conversation? Is it a bunch of videos stored in a thing that no one's ever going to watch? Or is it, you know, AI taking notes that no one's going to be able to read? What does, it, what does, what does this look like? Well, our experience is a structured inputs around that describes the history, the diagnosis, the stage grade, demographics, background and consolidated view of that patient. In saying that, that is taking time for all clinicians to see value in, in the inputs. And then we record confirmation around stage and grade and, and have drop-down boxes. So there's a data set, I guess, that underpins it to, to certainly try and structure that input in a robust way, which is evidence-based and underpinned by national consensus around what should be collected in an MDT. And then there's notes around that discussion and recommendations then it's completed by the primary clinician that brought that case to the MDT, so actually physically signed off in the system that we have and then downloaded after that. That's very sophisticated and very well thought through. Our So, for example, common circumstance in our practice might be the our practice nurse who is very, very, she types at the speed of lightning. And myself and perhaps another specialist who's going to be involved in this patient's care and the patient. So normally, because even in a 
actual face-to-face setting, she's often doing a lot of the notes. And then I review them prior to finalizing. That's exactly what we duplicate in the MDT setting. And so um, I think everywhere has to adopt what feels right from them. And like I said earlier, we're constantly learning along the journey. It's not a journey that we've completely nailed. We are constantly learning and trying to improve our systems. Another another point I'd pick up, Peter, is from what Sue said, the importance of having someone who is actually responsible for running the MDT. So it's it's not a virtual free-for-all. There actually is somebody that's responsible for making sure that things are appropriately documented and conclusions and outcomes are also documented and then available to the participants as well as as in, in the record. So it reinforces, again, the importance of having a policy and a process for virtual MDTs, but I mean, that's needed for a face-to-face one as well. It's not as though virtually is different, but it adds other issues, such as mentioned, making sure you're clear about who's attending. And I think also that video adds another benefit to that discussion rather than just simply text messages and SMSs going backwards and forwards. Even the raised eyebrow could tell you something, oh, maybe there's something we need to explore a bit further. Mm, mm. Nonverbal communication is so important, isn't it? Yeah. I want, I want to get into the nitty-gritty in a bit in terms of some of those complexities or maybe some of the medical legal things a bit later in this conversation. But just to touch on what you've just mentioned then, Tim, but to I was originally going to bring it back to some points that Talat had raised, which is it's great that there is this ability to get all these additional sources of information and engage other stakeholders that might not otherwise have been engaged, for example, the patients directly or their carers or other care providers that might not originally been involved in a physical MDT. On the other hand, there can be this sense of like information over, like how much information is too much information that doesn't give much value. So how do you find that balance between this is great that there's so much potential that exists in terms of being able to bring in different carers and different perspectives that might not otherwise have been had versus you know, just getting on and getting it. Because if you took every bit of information that was available, then you might not be able to get through an MDT in one day, if you know what I mean. So to like, in terms of the practical application of how you've found that balance between getting patients and their carers involved versus actually getting things done. Yeah, so I think that's an excellent question. So our model is not very traditional in that you'd find that most medical centres will have, for example, like four or five full-time staff, but our clinical teams are more like hub and spoke. So basically when I was setting it up, which is less than two years ago, I thought through the journey of women at different times of their lives. And I thought, I think, where do I have the skill set that would meet their needs? And where is there someone who is actually better than me that would be able to provide better care than me in that particular, because they're subspecialist or they may do a hundred of those procedures in a year as opposed to 10. So I think these are the questions that patients need to now start asking how do they access the most perfect pathway for them the point I was trying to make is that it does make it a little bit tricky because you have varying clinician pool and you have to actually almost knit together a path that will have only the relevant people input at times that are convenient for them so it's actually a scheduling issue as well so but we're finding more and more as we are doing more and more that is becoming more streamlined in that regard. So for example, like a urogynecology or a colorectal, for example, surgeon, we need an input. So even something as simple as somebody needing, for example, looking inside the uterus and sampling hysteroscopy and a colonoscopy done at the same time because of her pre-morbidity doesn't want to have two anesthetics done. But it does mean that the anesthetist needs to know about all the reasons why she's a fragile person in terms of medically. And also the, obviously the two surgeons need to be included. And then the woman needs to choose which option she feels is the right thing for her. So I guess those are the kind of actual real life examples that we look after daily. And like I said, they may not be as sophisticated as Sue's because I think cancer traditionally has been so good with MDT. It's been actually probably leading the medical space, if not probably orthopedics and rehab and geriatrics. I don't know if women's health has traditionally provided that spectrum of care. Um, But we try to say, just walk through our doors, whatever your issue is, if I can't do it, my friend will do it. And that the MDT is a big part of that, the virtual MDT. But Sue, you mentioned as well, that even with all of that structure and process around it, every MDT is a bit different and they're all kind of built around a particular workflow as well sometimes. Yeah, I think, you know, our observation and we've been, I've been leading this for a couple of years now, we have really sophisticated MDTs that have all of the 
good governance structures and a, a chair that manages that meeting well versus others that have really been more about an informal discussion. What the digital platform has enabled with, you know, the database, the inputs, the outputs, the coordination, it's been a platform that has enabled us to support those MDTs to become more mature in their evolution and development. So we haven't said your MDT must look like X. However, this is the minimum data set that needs to be Mm. collected. How you run that meeting, we have the tools for you, but we're certainly not going to take over what that MDT, how it functions, what's important, making sure the right people are there. But You know, there are some rules that we've brought in around that have been supported by the chairs. So it's actually helped the chairs facilitate a better meeting as well, but being able to close the number of cases that are added to that MDT prior to the meeting being started. Sending through key questions to pathology, radiology prior to the meeting so that it starts to almost give those prompts before you're in the room together so that when you are together, you kind of have that background information there. But they all look a bit differently. Even with all of that structure, how they run, the conversations have those principles and elements, but some are hybrids. So some still prefer to be in their room with notes, you know, they write their own notes as well as us capturing it through the platform. Importantly, as you introduce technology, it needs to enable rather than restrict and have the good governance that supports that. Totally hear you on that one. I'm hoping that then speaks to some of the the theme of the question that that Vicky put in there in terms of dragging clinicians and organisations along the process, particularly in a rural area, as she mentioned, which can be problematic and some of the support structures might still very much be thinking bricks and mortar first, but it sounds like rather than trying to implement a tool and then find a problem for it, it's addressing a particular issue to be solved and doing that effectively with something like virtual. That just could be one element of it and the rest of it is in person perhaps. So, And to, and to Vicky's question is that uh, while it's not a detailed topic for this webinar, there are plenty of examples around Australia where virtual technology, including the use of video, not just telephone Telehealth is used for clinical consultations, clinical decision making, aeromedical retrievals, the Victorian Rural Stroke Service, another example, neonatal retrievals. There's lots and lots of examples, rural mental health, and particularly in rural New South Wales, Queensland, Western Australia and uh, and Victoria. No offence to South Australia, but I haven't had much direct contact with rural South Australia. Oh, even Flinders Island in Tasmania. There you go. So hopefully that's helpful, Vicky. Um, I can see a question in the in the uh, Q and A from Rosa as well, which is more about, I guess, different platforms to deliver virtual MDTs and telehealth, which we can come back to near the end of the conversation. But I wanted to go back to a quote that you know Talat used, which is a picture takes a thousand words. But then I wanted to chat with Tim in particular about clinical photography. And whilst a photo can indeed tell a thousand words, it might actually create a thousand extra problems as well that didn't otherwise exist. So taking patient images and storing them virtually, where do you see the legal issues and risks in doing that? And do those risks outweigh the benefits? Well, as always, it depends on the specific case and the circumstances at a practical level is that if it's going to identify a person or is capable of identifying a person, you need their permission uh, to do that unless it's some form of emergency or absolutely essential to the next next stage of their care. Then there are practical issues about what are you going to use the image for? Is it only there temporarily? Are you going to store it permanently? Where are you going to store it? Who's going to have control of that? Who do you send it to? And those sort of issues. But that really just applies using common sense. The privacy law clearly applies. And also the ability these days, unfortunately, with social media to pick up images, trolling, and to actually use it against a patient, the risk is there. So you need to apply common sense. Do you actually need the photo? Will it actually tell a thousand words? What are you going to use it for? Who are you going to send it to? And are you sure the person who's receiving it is someone you can trust? 
and that they're not going to misuse the photo. And if it doesn't need to be retained, making sure that then it's deleted. But again, practical sort of things is what device are you using? Are you using your WhatsApp messaging or equivalent, but is it an account that is only used for that purpose? And so you're not again doing the reply all and accidentally sending it to all your friends. And perhaps on your device, you've got an automatic upload that it goes to iCloud or it goes to Dropbox. So, that's, so you've got to think of these things. Where might that image end up? But there's no law that says you cannot take a photo. There's no law that says you cannot send a photo for clinical care. You just have to make sure that you're doing it either with the direct knowledge and consent of the patient concerned, or they would reasonably expect you to do that as part of your care and that you are sending it to a person that you can trust and to be used for a purpose that is actually going to help the patient and improve outcomes of care. Just taking a photo for fun should be reported to the medical board or your professional registration board, and you shouldn't be practising. Yeah, of course. And it's interesting too that, you know, about the choice of platforms and whatnot, when that comes up, you can see why then from an organisation's perspective, having a platform that eliminates a lot of those variables Hmm. from an individual's perspective about it syncing up to cloud or having the wrong account and all that being on a dedicated platform for the business Hmm. makes a lot of sense, which is why you see more organizations moving towards that kind of structured approach with solutions that offer that control. And and just as a practical example, my background photo, Westgate Bridge in Melbourne. If you're an idiot and in storing clinical photos of patients in your photos on your laptop, you run the risk that it'll suddenly appear as a background for a Zoom conference about a wedding. (laughs) <laughs> but you know what? I've seen plenty of exact, like I, I know where you're coming from, Tim, in that respect, but it could happen so easy. I think because we've all got, you know, our phones and our devices being used. And from a clinician's point of view, if you're in the middle of doing seven or eight things, if it's not easy to use a clinical platform to be able to take an image, then you're going to take it on a phone and then it quickly spirals to a situation mm-hmm. that is kind of out of your control again. So there's a lot of things to keep in mind there. I'm actually interested, you know, from my own experience too, in speaking with clinicians more in the US, so I'm not sure if this relates to Australia, but I've come across clinicians who may take the view that they don't want to take images of whether it be it a lesion or a particular issue, anything, because they might not have seen something or something might be on there that then will then come back to bite them later that they didn't diagnose this particular lesion or an issue that there is captured on the photo. So they might avoid taking a photo to avoid getting caught out later. Do you, have you seen this as well? Well, again, that that's part of uh, what some would call defensive medicine, which I don't actually think is good medicine. Um, but there are some clinicians that uh, think, no, I just don't want to take the risk of that. So therefore I, I won't have it. But on, on the other hand is that if that image will actually help in getting another opinion, a second opinion, will actually help in arranging the care or uh, the plastic surgeon is having a look at at that lesion. That's to the benefit of the patient and and clinical care and that that should ultimately win. If you're going to practice on the basis that what if somebody can see something that I didn't see, then you're not really going to get very far in your particular clinical practice if you maintain that view. There's also uh, lots of... uh, developing AI and and other software that will help you with images and will actually say, you know, you ought to have a look in this particular corner of this image. Have you noticed that spot or that dot sort of thing there? So that there are ways to reduce that risk. But I mean, in the old days of sort of saying, well, if I don't write it down, I can't be held responsible for it. Well, if you don't write it down, you're going to be held responsible for not writing it down. So it's a misguided strategy, but American lawyers and American healthcare system are a bit strange. Uh, from time to time. So I'm glad we don't have it in Australia. I agree with Tim, actually. I think that when we started our electronic medical record in the practice allows a patient portal. And you'd be surprised how many people, because I was launched, going into a private practice, I was looking up to other people to provide some leadership and get some tips from. And a number of people said, no, that's too hard, this, this, that, blah, blah. But my experience in our anecdotal experience, and we're actually going to research in this area very shortly in the second half of this year, has been that patients actually want to know 
They want to know more, vast majority of them with a few exceptions who have said, look, you know, we have profuse anxiety. We don't want oversharing. But most people, the vast majority of people feel, oh, thank goodness, I know what it looks like now. Thank you for sharing. And I believe it builds trust in your clinical team because we truly do not have anything to hide. Yes, obviously, everyone is human and maybe there will be something to learn from a particular patient journey. But at the end of the day, you can't practice medicine like that, I, I believe. I think you have to be confident. You have to be authentic in your care. And that allows, you know, patients to share. So, for example, if someone had a surgical journey with us, they have their operation report, they have their results from the histopathology, and they have all their surgical images once they log on to their portal and they see that. And then that enables us, for example, if we diagnose a cancer, we then want to connect for a multidisciplinary team, or we diagnose something for a secondary um, review, that then provides such a robust material to be able to have a mature discussion, like Sue mentioned. It really raises the level of the maturity amongst the clinicians in terms of the actual information sharing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the other thing to add is that the process then actually builds confidence, helps patients actually be able to self-manage, know the role of their team, who's in their team, how to connect with the team. So all of those things, it is far more person-centred and the technology enables that to happen if it's well structured and there's good governance, all of those things, I agree with Talat, that patients are keen for the right discussion with the right team. Yeah. 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 So having that system around it, be it the technology or also the policies and procedures and like you That's said, the right. governance then creates. It's both. And I think what the virtual platform also allows is that you can have asynchronous MDTs where they may not have all five people sit throughout the entire process. And you might just bring the person in at the end of the discussion. For example, we look after a lot of young Mm -hmm. girls and they want to bring in their mum at the end of the discussion and that's fine. You know, so there are lots of ways that you can actually tweak it to meet the needs of those individual circumstances of the family that you're caring for. Just drawing attention to attendees who are here live at the webinar. There's about 15 minutes left in the conversation, a good opportunity for you to share any thoughts or comments or questions for the panellists that we can address in this part of the conversation. So do use the Q&A or even just drop it in the chat and we can bring those up to the panellists now. I see Rosa has brought up a point more so about the platforms themselves being utilised, about you know different women's health, virtual MDTs, telehealth platforms, mm-hmm. raising a lot of money in the US. Do you think these types of things will continue to come into Australia from overseas? I'm, I mean... Anyone got any perspectives on these things in terms of the technology you've got now? Is the there's a lot of Australian competition. There are a number of people that I know personally that are trying to optimize their digital um, and access for remote and rural health. Um, so I feel that yes, there are obviously overseas options, but we are hoping that we will provide more domestic options, including mm-hmm. a number of people I personally know who are working in this space, so that people, you know, patients have the variety and the choice that they deserve. From Ramsey, we've partnered with Informatics around, I guess, co-creating Clinivid to be fit for purpose for the private sector. And there was no one platform. So, you know, through the research that I'd done prior to, there wasn't a platform that had everything. And so we've integrated it with Zoom, built out a database, added the kind of platform what we loved about Clinivid was its secure messaging it was web-based it was cloud storage and we've built out components with the clinicians so that the technology actually meets what they need to be able to you know work virtually or face-to-face so having that flexibility was really important so I did not see one platform that did everything So I think it is, you know, it might be a bolt-on or multiple components that start to shape what it looks like Mm -hmm. rather than one product that does everything. So we use Clinivid as well, and we also use Health Direct in our practice, and we use um, Clinic to Cloud as our EMR yeah. software. And so that allows me to use, like, for example, take a photo directly into the patient journey, so it's not stored on my phone. So in theatre, I would 
prefer to do that. Um, so I guess, like you said, I think on Santa's wish list is interconnectivity. So yeah. that's the one thing we're all wanting more and more and more of in future. But otherwise, they seem to work reasonably well, both of them. I was just going to make two, two quick non-legal comments is uh, Talat's just mentioned it, is that uh, Australia's still got a long way to go on interoperability and uh, the United States, uh, because of the legislative requirements and the directions to make systems talk to each other, uh, it's not perfect, but it's uh, ahead of Australia now. So that's still something we have to work on Australia. We keep talking about it, but not actually doing it. Mm -hmm. And the other aspect is that trying to find the right balance with the Medicare benefit system rules is that with telehealth and uh, the need to have seen the patient within the previous 12 months, unless it's one of the other exceptions, is uh, finding a way in which the Treasury and uh, the Commonwealth Department of Health feel as though there's not going to be a free-for-all and uh, Medicare benefit expenditure or rocket. But that's another limiting factor about uh, expanding virtual MDTs. But on the other hand, it's providing better clinical care. It makes it more attractive for clinicians to come and work with an organisation that supports it. And uh, ultimately, that, that will lead to uh, better revenue for that organisation. Tim, from your perspective, you covered quite a few, actually, in terms of any potential risk or medical legal issues that might arise from a virtual MDT setting that need to be thought about from organisations that might be thinking of implementing such a thing. Was there anything that we've missed from this conversation that organisations or people might not be thinking about when they're thinking about him, when they're planning on implementing something like this? Well, I think it's, it's to reinforce the need to plan and have a policy uh, framework around it and not let it just be simply a free-for-all. The need for it to link in, the outcome of that process to link in to the patient's record for the participants that they are able to have a record of their participation and the outcome as well. The practical issues of privacy and security, privacy and security are not the same thing, but you need both to ensure both a secure and, and uh, privacy law compliance. There's a review of the Federal Privacy Act underway at the present time. It'd be interesting to see the outcome of that over the next 12 or 18 months. And I think also making sure that in the process that we're continuing to make sure that we're trying to make it easier for people to be involved but that's the right people to be involved and they're using the right devices and that they are taking responsibility for their participation in the virtual MDT. And I'd add to that by audit. So keep an audit of your, of your processes mm -hmm. and also feedback. Allow the consumer and also your team to feedback in terms of what things are we doing really well and how can we actually improve from where we think there may still be ongoing gaps. Yeah. And that, that's think, part of a clinical governance framework uh, for, for it, yeah. And the other thing to add is, you know, clinicians will participate if they see value. Mm -hmm. And so one of the, I guess, levers was to provide clinicians with a QA summary of their MDT, how they're functioning, the caseload, the demographics, so that it's de-identified but starts to position around, you know, it works really nicely in any MDT, but particularly in cancer, thinking about, you know, it might be breast MDT or head and neck cancer, so that they can then start to use that aggregated de-identified data to inform research, clinical trials. So it's creating value, I guess, for clinicians that were is more than what just participating in it both for themselves personally around their CPD and being able to generate information around that, but also for themselves as a craft group and subspecialty group providing care for people. So it sort of reinforces, I guess, what is best practice and that feedback loop and providing meaningful information to clinicians so that they can reflect and review on their performance and QA processes. And going back to that earlier question, I think that is an example of where we're not trying to drag clinicians into virtual MDT. Clinicians will want to use and participate in virtual MDT when, as Sue says, it, they can see the value in it for them and their practice, but also importantly for their patients. And there's clearly the evidence is there that it does deliver on both. And Sarah's put in the Q&A section there potentially... It's about bringing up these points in the education side of medical and nursing curriculum would help with the adoption and uptake of some digital health. So is anyone 
feel that that's also a um, an element of this is education in the health space? Well, digital virtual health is certainly becoming part of the curricula for all health professionals. The trouble is the curricula is so packed and also to some extent uh, it gets undone and forgotten when you actually go into clinical practice. So I think it's more important that the clinical practice reinforces it. It's good to have it in the curriculum, but it's the actual clinical practice and the environment you're working in that it supports and uh, uses virtual technology in a safe, secure way that's to benefit for the patient. And then their participation in the MDT also benefits their education mm. and knowledge building. So it's a really yeah, valuable environment for learning both from undergrad, you know, technology enables rather than being the panacea and solution. It's an enabler for good clinical care. So how it's woven in rather than a defined topic area is probably more and then how it's applied yeah. in practice is really important. Mm. Well, as we start to wind out the conversation, it'd be good to kind of put a cap on things in terms of some of the key takeaways or closing comments from each of the panellists. I know we've given some good actionable advice as well. Just then thank you, Tim and Sue and Talat for providing that. But just to round out the conversation, then I might start with Sue and then Talat and then Tim to close some of the key points from taking away from this conversation today. Thanks, Pete. You know, a couple of important messages from me would be, you know, governance, good governance documentation, transparency around the why. Why are we actually doing this and how is it going to enhance clinical practice and best practice? And then providing value to clinicians to participate and enabled by a digital platform that supports their workflow, their easy access and flexibility around participating in MDTs. Clinicians are really busy. And, you know, they participate in MDTs, not necessarily in one hospital. So it may be in multiple hospitals. So I think it is working out how to fit in to what is the real world practice of a clinician and enabling that to happen. Thank you. A lot. Look, my thoughts would be embrace change. Whether we like it or not, things are changing very rapidly due to external circumstances and partly due to technological advances. Embrace it with both hands. And then obviously look for, like Tim's invaluable information around the safety and the security angle. You know, I think that there is so many, it's actually the other way around. I look at it as lost opportunities that could, you know, actually reduce the quality of the care if we don't, actually think through how can we get the best team that would provide the best possible care for this family that we're caring for. Amazing. Bring us on home, Tim. <laughs> well, I'd reinforce again uh, the importance of governance and, and uh, having a policy for organisations that are accredited is that you're required to annually, the board has to provide an attestation statement that uh, the organisation is meeting the standards required under accreditation and of course standard one is clinical governance and uh, I think many many boards probably haven't turned their mind to finding out what is actually happening in virtual territory in their organisations let alone virtual MDTs. Uh, the importance of having a digital footprint and documentation so that you actually do know what was the outcome, who participated, what was the discussion about. This uh, linkage interoperability that uh, we're not trying to create more silos so that it links into, if it's a hospital to your EMR system, a clinician, it links into your practice system in terms of the MDT, that it's a two-way process about privacy and security. It's not just a matter for what's the software you're using for the virtual MDT. It's uh, what devices are people using and who are they sending the information to. And I think just being practical and sensible, how would you like your information treated? And if you wouldn't like it, don't do it. What a good summary. Thank you, everybody on the panel for putting together these points. I can see in the chat that it's resonated with quite a few already. So Tim, Talat and Sue, I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.